Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. And today's episode is a discussion episode between myself and my partner on the show, John Harney. Hey, John. Hey, Bob. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, So today's episode, we're going to go through some of the work that we've done recently on History Respawn, as well as to preview some of the work we've got coming up in what promises to be a really busy fall uh, for historical games. But I thought we'd start out by talking about a game that we covered earlier on in the year with a podcast episode. Uh, and the game is Four Horsemen, uh, which is developed by Nuclear Fission Software, uh, and in particular by the director Kevin Chen. And this is a visual novel social simulation game based on the immigrant experience. Uh, and specifically, you follow the story of four immigrant teenagers hanging out in a World War II-era bunker. Uh, so uh, Kevin was nice enough to provide us with a couple of review copies of the finished game, which is now available on Steam. And I thought, John, I'd turn to you, you know, as as an Irish immigrant uh, <laughs> and as somebody who's been an immigrant many times right. in their life. What did, what did you make of this game? What, is, what were your impressions? I I really like it, first of all. That's that's the first reaction. And, and it's it's kind of, I'm not always as fond as i should be immediately of indie games this is a very indie game you know it's mm-hmm. input together with a lot of love and a lot of skill um but also with with whatever budget you know he had i suppose um and i'm terrible like those things put me off you know like menus and stuff put me off and that hasn't been the case with this partly because it's really gripping and what really struck me and really the kind of main comment i have about the game as a whole is that it's just its dedication to theme is absolute right yeah. um and so it's kind of, it makes you wonder how we'll cover it in terms of an episode and the like. I mean, if we could talk to the developer, that'd be ideal, I think. But I think that an historian would be a bit flustered on how to deal with it in terms of, you know, it would depend on the guest, of course, but what does what do they want me to talk about when they give me this game? Like, I give them Neo, right? And there's Japanese ghosts and demons. Like, oh, okay, that's what I write about. That's why he asked me to do it. Um, mm-hmm. This game, I think, would, would kind of be interesting and we'd have to have a real dialogue. We always, of course, have dialogues with our guests, but a real dialogue to, to figure out how to approach it. At the same time, I, I, I need to give this more thought, but I'm, I'm very interested in assigning it to students, maybe in my January class, because he just, I, I really love the way this game engages with the theme and, and folds it into the gameplay and is much more successful than, to be honest, I thought it could be at this kind of, this genuine open-ended gameplay type mm-hmm. idea and so i think ultimately one of the things he's going for is a sense of isolation but solidarity you're controlling these four main characters so as a group as a small group they are isolated but they have the solidarity among them and i'm really struck by the writing um they're young characters and they act like teenagers and i was living in asia as a teenager and it does strike me actually you form these kind of strong bonds and you can quickly kind of decide that you're 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 you know what's the word um you're an outpost in this alien society you know um which is exactly what's happening in the game and so i i've really been struck by and impressed by how successfully it was with that i think i think the Mm -hmm. i think the writing is really funneling it where these characters are just really funny and by the way the visual novel genre is having a bit of a renaissance which is not something i ever thought would happen and i do not like uh, visual novels and I don't and I and I must tell you visual novels tell me what you really think and, <laughs> and, visual, <laughs> and visual novels with anime aesthetics I mean whoa it's just not it's just not for me but this is a completely different ball game 
Um, and yeah. so I just, I, I love it. It's such a, it, this is a word that's overused, but it's it's unique, this game. And and I mm-hmm. and I think that's a strength for it. Talk about the immigrant experience because there's so much of that experience that is personal and emotional. And the game, the game is, the game gets that, I think, from the very start, the game understands that. Yeah. And in talking to Kevin, you know, during the podcast and outside the podcast, uh, you know, he was trying to get at that kind of personalized level of the immigrant story because he didn't want this game to be just a generalized story about, you know, all immigrants, all immigrants have this experience. And he says, no, you know, the immigrant experience, it depends on where you are. It depends on the historical context. It depends on, you know, what your parents, how they receive their own immigrant experience that determines a lot Mm -hmm. of what happens to you. Um, and so I think that the, the way that this game is set up and how it changes based on your own gameplay, but then also, uh, based on random elements really makes that kind of personal narrative come through uh, in a way that I think wouldn't work if you, you know, simply had one main character and a, a, a set of predetermined NPCs, right. uh, for instance. So I think he's he's achieved that. Like, there's no question. And I really like how the game gives you the freedom to try to find ways to negotiate your space not only within the overall community, but within your group of friends, mm-hmm. you know, to see, you know, how you interact with one another and, you know, which friends you are going to kind of feel most closely bonded to based on kind of having similar ideas about right. the immigrant experience. And uh, so there is this kind of, like you said, group mentality, a bunker mentality, mm-hmm. uh, if you will, within that small group of friends. But even within that group, there's kind of closer alliances, closer, closer relationships uh, based on similar thinking about the situation. Yeah, I must say I've been largely impressed by how well in the game, you know, the characters break out into pretty overtly political conversations, really. And I'm not, you know, I'm not eye rolling, you know, <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not torn out of the game experience. Like this is the game. And lots of other cool little things happening in the game where he kind of has these trappings of an RPG, but that's kind of a trap a little bit, you know, it doesn't actually mm-hmm. work that way. And lo- no, lots yeah. of things that would make people who play lots of games very happy, I think. Um, but I'm deeply impressed when the characters start to have these meaningful conversations with each other and I'm not put off by it and maybe that says more about me than it does anybody else but you know it's tough i think it's tough to creatively engage those kind of things without coming across as preachy and i really don't think that he does at all in the game yeah yeah and that was something he was definitely worried about Mm. um well so kind of briefly transitioning to another game that i know you're deeply impressed with i thought we might take a moment and talk a little bit about uh, horizon zero dawn uh, which is a game that we uh, have both played. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in the midst of playing it now. I finished I it during the summer, and you kind of wanted to share some thoughts about how the game, uh, you know, kind of creates this history and has the player move through uh, a post-apocalyptic world mm-hmm. in which history is kind of coming back, or yeah. history is re-emerging. I yeah, I this is something that I we're going to tackle more directly. I'm sure with a bunch of games and it's come up before like we've talked about it before for example like Dragon Age maybe or Skyrim and these kind of these western CRPGs with you're unlocking reams of text that some people are reading and some people aren't but that that you have to construct this history within it and I guess I just wanted a chance to talk to you about Horizon Zero Dawn because I know you really liked it and I really like it Um, and I'm 
I'm doing more side quests than I thought I ever would. Um, I definitely get into these uh, issues where I am being killed by the same bloody machine over and over and over again. But, <laughs> but I come back and I'm at a point in the game, I've just met, basically, you know, if the Mexica, if the Aztec Empire had a person who ended human sacrifice take over, um, that, I'm in their city. I only just got there. And I've been playing mm-hmm. a lot of this game. So I have no idea how close I am to the end or this main story or whatever. But the juxtapositions of the game, I think, are done really well. Um, you know, a few months ago, we did Far Cry Primal for the YouTube channel. And I remember at the time talking to you um, about books you were recommending to me. And it was just kind of so much fun and so interesting to to talk about that period of human history. And Horizon Zero Dawn is, you know, which it happens in sci-fi a lot, right? Is the humans are back around to that again after some kind of massive disaster that seems to involved a seems to have involved AI. So this is stuff that should be trite and should or should be it's very well tra- well trodden stuff. But I really like the way Horizon Zero Dawn is doing it. Um, and I think one of the re- one of the ways they've done well in it is by taking this idea of what would a society look like seriously. Like they're not they're recycling the idea that some kind of tribal political organizations would emerge. But um but they put real thought into what it would look like. So even though I made the joke about the Mexica King or whatever, obviously has massive debt to the history of, of pre-Columbia Mexico. But it's also their own thing. I, I feel like I'm yeah. being very vague there, but I, 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 I'm trying to kind of, I kind of wanted to talk to you and kind of, you know, talk to you about it because I know you played a lot of the game. And I guess, again, I've said this so many games before, but I like it when games do this. It's a very light touch in the sense that I think a lot of Horizon Zero Dawn fans wouldn't think of this as history. But for me, it's like one of my favorite things about the game is it's just completely saturated with the kind of stuff that I find fascinating. You know, why are societies organized the way that they are? How are they interacting Mm -hmm. with each other? What comes next? Um, And I'm waiting to see, I'm kind of waiting to see if the game, I've heard the game ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. So I'm kind of, I'm waiting to see if the game t- gives me more. I'm kind of waiting to see if the game makes broader statements about where human society is going in this kind of dystopia, because so far it isn't necessarily a dystopia at all. Um, and so I, I kind of I like that about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what struck me about the game was the way in which these characters who, you know, like you mentioned, are kind of in now in a new kind of prehistoric era, mm-hmm. essentially brought on by this cataclysm, but how they are constructing a memory of the past yes. based on what was left behind. And I think that that process, which your character Aloy is definitely a part of and basically is acting like, in a way, like a revisionist historian going through and saying, well, no, this is actually this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, finding these texts right. and being able to read these, what they consider to be like ancient hieroglyphs. Um, this is a process of creating history, creating memory, uh, but it's also one in which there's already kind of an existing history there that has, you know, come down through myth and through legend. And I think that the process in which your character is going through to kind of reveal the true history, or at least to uh, to kind of dispel some of these myths, is a really exciting process because your character is essentially like I said, kind of a historian, right? Trying to to get rid of these uh, kind of uh, prehistoric notions, to get rid of this this myth, and so I think that that's kind of an interesting role for a character in a first person uh, action adventure game, mm-hmm. uh, right? To essentially be an archaeologist or to be a historian. Uh, another respect that I think the game is interesting is 
you know, and it was developed by Western developers, developed by Guerrilla Games, which did uh, the Killzone series. Mm-hmm. But how those developers, how those writers, how they perceive what is pre-modern, right? How they perceive what is prehistoric, how they perceive what is, you know, kind of Stone Age. And does that necessarily line up with, you know, our history of that time period? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in what ways do they add and take away from that? And what does that say about us, you know, playing this game? What does that say about this developers, about our perception about what is modernity? Right. Right. What makes a society advance? Uh, so there's just a lot of li- little interesting things, little angles mm-hmm. and you know, I finished the game during the summer, and I kept thinking, God, I really want to turn this into a History Respawn episode, but I but can't. How? I just can't <laughs> think about it. And I'm just like, okay, well, would I get an archaeologist? Would I get right. an anthropologist yeah. on? I, I just don't know how to tackle it. Yeah, you. I mean, even, you know, talking about it now, it, it's even hard to kind of verbalize it. I mean, another aspect of Aloy as an historian is that you have these multiple communities in the game, and so far I'm aware of kind of these the two main, well, three main communities, and each of them have completely different interpretations of the past. Um, and in mm-hmm. the game, that factors into their entire society and culture. It affects their religion, you know, the Aloy's community from which she has actually been discarded as a child, uh, you know, believes itself to be in the sacred valley, so they don't go out very much. Um, you go to this larger city that had previously been run by people capturing others for blood sacrifices to their sun god, and they think that you're kind of a bumpkin. There's this third community that are kind of you know, dwarves and all but stature and name, you know, kind of, you know, these technologically yeah. capable guys. But I really, so far, I love the attention to detail that this community is clearly shaped by its preconceptions, which are based entirely on its understanding of where it stands in the world. And the spiritual is an important and central part of that. But there's also this yeah. sense of how are we connected to what lies beneath the earth? And so Aloy's tribe just say, nope not going there like it's don't ever go there and it's 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 profane etc cetera, etc cetera. and then the other two communities have differing attitudes to how that works yeah i think it's fascinating and i i think also just to in in terms of gameplay the game is a lot of fun to play oh, yeah, even though it is really challenging at points especially with some of the more advanced uh, machines that you run across and even some of the the human characters that you have to mm-hmm. fight and it's also pretty difficult and i think that 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 helped a lot because i feel like in many open world action adventure games you become overpowered very quickly right. and the combat itself becomes not very interesting but this game managed to to make the combat compelling throughout and then also the storytelling is also really well done and the voice actors i think are phenomenal aloy and then um oh what is the what is the guy from the the wire uh, who, who's kind of your guide? Oh, uh, Rost? The, the tombs. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, no, sorry, not Rost. Oh, no. I don't know. Uh, I can't remember. Is it like Silence or something like that? I'm or drawing a blank now as well. Silas. I can't remember. But it's, it's, but he's great. It's, 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 it's the mark of a great game uh, that I will go to a bandit camp and sit in the same bush for like 20 minutes whistling at people. They come over, I murder them. And uh, the next guy comes over, I murder him. And the next guy comes over. And my favorite is the guy who walks over, sees the eight dead bodies, doesn't really do anything. And then I kill him again. And I'm sitting there going, this is preposterous and ridiculous. And I'm having so much fun. Like, it's it's so well done. (laughs) Because they've really successfully installed this idea of stalking into it and 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 the machines. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but I wouldn't be enjoying this game anywhere near as much if the characters weren't as well done, if if the world wasn't as well built. I've played... Um, some of those previous guerrilla games, and uh, I did not know they had this in them. 
I got to say it. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. Really impressive. Really impressive. All right. Well, so moving on, I thought we might share some of our plans mm -hmm. uh, for our fall schedule coming up. So just like last year, we've got uh, a string of three really phenomenal uh, kind of history-related games coming up, big AAA uh, released games. Uh, and so last year we had things like uh, Civilization VI, uh, and uh, God, I can't remember the rest oh, of them. Oh yeah, now. the rush but of anyways, those games. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was that was a heady time mm -hmm. period. So we've kind of tried to plan out what our future schedule is going to be, so it doesn't overwhelm us in the same way that it did last year. So uh, starting uh, in uh, let's see, at the end of this month, actually, I think next mm -hmm. week, uh, we see the release of uh, three games: uh, Call of Duty, World War II. Assassin's Creed Origins, and then Wolfenstein, The New Colossus. Now, we're not going to try to cover all of those games in one month. I mean, that would be wonderful, uh, but we do have we do have day jobs. Uh, and that, in many ways, this is the worst time of the year for these games to come out because this is also the probably the most busy time uh, for an academic schedule is the end of the fall. Yeah. Fall quarter here, but also fall semester for you're on the semester we're on the semester system, system right, with the, with the winter thing yeah. in January, yeah. But it's it's yeah, yeah it's so I'm going to be running home. I'm going to be playing Wolfenstein between grading sessions, more than likely. <laughs> Which you know, listen, there are worse things I could be doing. I don't, I shouldn't cry too much, don't, you know. Yeah, don't let that affect your your grading. <laughs> uh, however, um, so uh, for November for that first. Uh, post-release uh, episode, we're going to cover Call of Duty World War II. And one of the reasons why I felt like we should do Call of Duty World War II first is because I think it's going to get the most attention mm -hmm. from the wider public. So I'd kind of like to have History Respawn there to provide a little context uh, for that popular enthusiasm, for which I think there's going to be a lot of it uh, for Call of Duty going back to World War II. I think so. I mean, it, it's actually a heck of a blockbuster end of the year for our particular niche of video game fandom because Assassin's Creed games are just, you know, all those games are are a big, big deal. And we know that our audience loves those games and that those games have traditionally mm -hmm. brought us new people into our audience. But yeah, I think 100% agree on Call of Duty World War Two. It, I mean, it's exciting. I mean, I'm excited to see what it's like and I'm excited to see the conversations yeah. that do come out of it. Yeah, uh, and so then following on that, in December, we're going to cover Assassin's Creed Origins. Uh, this is set in ancient Egypt. Uh, we just had a recent podcast episode featuring uh, Ubisoft's uh, professional, uh, well, I shouldn't say, well, he is a professional historian, but in-house resident historian, uh, Maxime Durand, uh, in which he kind of went through uh, some of the uh, research that went into uh, studying this time period, but then also uh, what promises to be a really interesting mode for historians uh maxime discussed uh, the discovery tour mode uh which is a kind of a standalone dlc that's going to come out in i think january or february of next year and which you will have all of the combat stripped out you will have uh, uh all of the kind of history put front and center and with the availability of uh, a new travel and menu system that allow all of that history to be quickly searched uh, and studied uh, within the game. So, uh, John, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to that episode with Max, but uh, what do you think of Discovery Tour mode just on 
First I'm blush. very excited at first blush. I am embarrassed to say that I do consume our own content, but I haven't listened to the podcast yet because um, <laughs> uh, I just it just hasn't been able to happen yet, unfortunately. But um, I am excited, and it's something that, for example, when I assign games, we just did eighty days in my history survey, you know, and and when we when we assign games, I'll often have students who play a lot of games, especially history buff students play a lot of games. They'll say to me, "We should totally do Europa Universalis." You know, we should do Crusader Kings too. And I'm like, I would love for my students to have the experience of playing fifteen hours of one of those games. Um, but that fifteen hours doesn't include the time to take to learn to play those games. Now, Assassin's Creed, I think, is a little bit different. Um, because Assassin's Creed doesn't have as high a learning curve, but I, I'm I'm excited by any increase in accessibility to be able to bring this to students and say, check this out, and, and not just students, but yeah. like in my in my specific immediate context, I'm interested in that, and uh, and I can't can't wait to play around with it. Like I've definitely read quite a bit about it. I'm going to listen to the podcast about it shortly. I'm excited to hear more about it, but I kind of want to get my own hands on it and see. Well, how does this work? What can I do? You know? Yeah, yeah, and I think there's going to be a couple of episodes. On that, I've been in touch with an Egyptologist about doing the AC Origins episode. I think that's going to happen for the December episode. But I think once Discovery Tour mode comes out, you know, you and I might do a separate episode on mm-hmm. that. You know, maybe in February or in March or sometime in the spring, just to kind of to kind of sink our teeth into it and see what we make of it as not just historians but also instructors, mm-hmm. uh, because I think. You know, when I talked to Max, they seemed very bullish on having this used in classrooms. So we'll see about the applicability. I'm interested by this very gently widening trend, which is nice to hear, you know, that the talk of Civ over the last couple of years, you know, has kind of been slowly moving. And there's a lot of K through 12 stuff, which I understand, you know, um, and which is also very, very important. But, you know, very little science here and there. Mashin and Mensch, who make the game The Curious Expedition, who were very, very courteous to me last year and provided some keys for my students for the browser version of the game, um, now have a policy, as, as you've pub- helped them publicize, Bob, um, developers have walled in the game to the same thing, which is we want people mm-hmm. to have this in their hands if they want to talk about it in the classroom, using the classroom, whatever. And Ubisoft doing this is a very, very, very big deal, you know? Um, and so yeah. at the very least, I think it signals to other people that, hey, this is worth thinking about and worth you know your time and i think ubisoft's always had that commitment um but this is much this is more tangible still they always have the famous statement you know this was made by a diverse group of developers etc right <laughs> but and, but that reflects a reality yeah. of a, an attitude that they have but i think this is a uh, this is really encouraging i'm, I'm very hopeful this is going to be a great yeah. sign for the future and i know there's some critics out there who say well this is just a, a cynical you know marketing scheme on their part but the work that you know Max described them putting into this, I mean, essentially they're creating a second version wow. of the game, which is going to be free. Yeah. I and I can see from a cynical viewpoint. Well, you put this in classrooms, then it encourages future people to to go out and buy the game. These young kids who are very impressionable, and it's like, yeah, that might be the case. But if they are doing the due diligence, if they're doing the research, if they're like Max described, if they're t- reaching out to scholars, you know, getting uh, you know advice mm-hmm. and. Uh, written material right. from them and creating bibliographies it's like why wouldn't we want that even if ubisoft makes money off of it down the road why wouldn't we want that kind of thing happening i agree completely and and furthermore and this isn't the same as you know ubisoft paying for classrooms and all these other things that are actually happening in academia right you know this is the ubisoft yeah. technical technological classroom although maybe they will start <laughs> doing that kind of stuff too and you know guys 
the Assassin's Creed right. reader, or the Assassin's Creed textbook. You know, textbook. listen, Ubisoft, yeah. if you want to build um, an interactive lab at Centre College, um, I take back everything I just said in the last 30 seconds, come here. But um, <laughs> the other part of it is, and I, I don't want to be too dismissive of those concerns, because I think they're entirely valid, as you say, Bob, but, I, you know, I, I think children are finding Assassin's Creed no matter what, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. And if this is, like you say, this is a good faith effort. And if it wasn't a good faith effort or if it was done badly, it wouldn't matter. It would just disappear into the ether anyway. I mean, we all, you, yeah. you're, our generation, certainly, Bob, has experiences of just negative, quote unquote, video game educational experiences. There's a long history oh, yeah. of the bad oh, ones yeah. don't go anywhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, to kind of wrap up this uh, busy uh, upcoming history game schedule, uh, we'll have a January episode uh, done by John on Wolfenstein the New Colossus. So this is the sequel uh, to Wolfenstein the New Order, which was the basis for one of our, I think, better episodes. It's a great one. I really like it. uh, Featuring, yeah, featuring a couple of scholars of uh, German language, German history, uh, Nicholas Heckner and then uh, Evan Mm -hmm. Torner. Uh, So, uh, yeah, the New Colossus, which is kind of caring for that story, uh, alternate history, America run by Nazis. Some people would say, arguably, that this is uh, actually a part of actual history in America, <laughs> rather than just alternate history, current history. Um, but I'm really excited to play the game. I loved, uh, you know, this kind of the New Order. I loved the the gameplay from it. I loved the alternate history uh, background, and uh, I'm really excited to see what the final game looks like. I can't wait. You know, I, I know, for example, to pick a a, a very kind of in your face example there's you know the trailer features some guy with a ku klux klan hood coming at you with a gun kind of thing um i'm excited to see what how that actually works and all you know all the game show stuff they've done in the trailer commercials i don't know i think that although this game i guess is more quote unquote out there than the first game the first game was pretty out there you know and and i'm on the record mm-hmm. as saying people who listen to the podcast have heard me talk about it like i I'm fascinated by the way the first game handled the Holocaust, for example, and, and delved into thematic ideas. And let's see what happens in the second game. I mean, even if it isn't as successful, you know, there's black power being referenced post post war America and race, and and still referencing these the kinds of things you're going to get into with the Nazis, you know, fascism, body politics, you know, the kind of technology stuff, the mech the the mechs they have. I'm. Uh, I'm really excited about it, and I've kind of I've watched the two trailers, yeah. but I've I've kind of I I never do this with with games and movies, but I've kind of been starving myself of information. I've deliberately been avoiding uh, <laughs> avoiding uh, preview stuff because I just I, and I have a lot of confidence in them after the first game, so I, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, the there's been uh, a lot of hubbub recently about the trailers and then the advanced right. marketing stuff around the new Colossus, you know, based on the fact that the marketing team at least is really leaning into this current uh, wave of uh, anti-fascism, mm-hmm. you know, uh, kind of promoting the game based on the fact you get to kill Nazis, <laughs> you get to punch uh, Nazis to death. And uh, there's been a few articles, one really good one that I read recently on um, Glixel, uh, which is the kind of Rolling Stone gaming site, which has an interview with the um, uh, marketing team mm-hmm. as well as uh, one of the right. developers of the game and there is you know uh kind of a a valley between those two sides uh you know promoting this game you know between the developers themselves and then also uh the marketing team and at least from the development side they wouldn't necessarily lean in too hard on the current wave of anti-fascist 
rhetoric, but at the same time, they say, look, this is Wolfenstein. <laughs> the whole basis of the series is murdering Nazis. So if that's a political statement, then it's been making that statement since the early When 1990s. I was a boy, my father banned a couple of games, including Mortal Kombat. He said, nope, can't do it. Not going to go there. Um, but he let me play Wolfenstein 3D. And he told me, he's like, well, you're killing Nazis. So, you know, I'm fine with that. <laughs> it's kind of, that's, you know, this is violence against a clearly evil force. I actually did read that interview too. I was really struck by it. I was really fascinated by it because it, it would be unfair to say the tone was defensive from the developers, but it was just very clear, very crystal clear. No, no, this is what the game is. The game has been this way. The game's mm -hmm. been developed. The game was practically done when Charlottesville happened. And when previous events happened. Yeah. So we are who we are. And it might have been Rob Rath or somebody else on Twitter. One of our Twitter friends pointed out, like, it's kind of worthwhile for video game fans to see that, that the developers and the PR team are often very far apart, especially at these large, large publishers. Yes. And, you know, I think there is a case for maybe being a little bit put off by the advertising. I mean, the whole punch a Nazi thing, I don't know, it can get pretty glib and everything else, but... You know, if there are people out there upset that a, an ad campaign is saying that Nazis are bad, I don't know how many people actually feel that way, but I think we should all agree. I think we should all <laughs> agree that those people's opinions just aren't important. Um, they're just not mm. important. Uh, you know, <laughs> these yeah. are Nazis. It's that simple. And again, it's as PR controversies go, it's pretty, it's it's pretty mild. And and anything that gets this game, this yeah. game is going to sell gangbusters anyway. So I'm, I, yeah, I'm excited. I think so too. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of wrap things up, uh, some of the listeners may have noticed that our website is down. Uh, so recently, uh, I, I I'm going to take the, well, blame don't on this know. One. recently, it's a shared, uh, we, shared thing. well, <laughs> well, uh, recently we were trying to, uh, move, uh, the servers for the website to move it to a different uh, host. And during that process, the website uh, was infected with malware uh, so now we're in the process of essentially recreating mm -hmm. the website on the new host. And so given that fact, uh, I am kind of putting myself in charge of getting the website back up, hopefully by the end of this month. Uh, but in order to do that, I'm going to have to delay the episode on Far Cry 2. And I know this is a disappointment for a lot of our listeners, particularly our uh, patrons on Patreon, thank you again for your support, uh, who voted uh, for this to be the next episode of the show. And I'm just afraid that given the website troubles, given the fact that I want to get that back up there, I, I'm going to have to kind of table uh, Far Cry 2 episode for the time being. Hopefully I can get to it. Uh, during uh, some point, you know, maybe in October, no, not October, but uh, November, uh, even going into December. Uh, but if not, it'll be, you know, one of the first episodes of next year. And this is an issue. We do this because we love it. And we have gotten much better than we ever thought we could at things like editing audio and video. Those were not skills I tended to develop when I was in graduate school. Um, and this this was an issue that completely it, it just immediately flew right past the barriers of our abilities and our self-training. And so it's yeah. not something we're happy about yeah. at all. Um, but here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we'll try to get that Far Cry 2 episode up as soon as we can. Um, and just know that, uh, well, at least for myself, I, I feel bad personally about this because I know. The website does get used. Uh, you know, it doesn't get a huge amount of traffic, but I knew, do know some people who use the uh, basically the RSS RSF feed for uh, the 
uh, website in order to get our content. So I know that's important for some of you. Uh, so I want to get that back up. And especially with this incredible slate of history games we've got coming up, I think it's really important to to get that back up in order to promote the show, in order to kind of continue to build upon um, the success that we've had uh, so far. We're up over 5,000 subscribers on YouTube. The podcast gets several hundred downloads per episode. So we're very pleased with how this is done. Uh, especially given the fact that uh, we both have uh, day jobs, not just any day <laughs> jobs, but very intense yeah. day jobs. And also, you know, we, we've got support, but, you know, it's not a whole bunch of money, but it is greatly, greatly appreciated. Uh, so thank you for your patience. It really makes it possible if, if it's okay for you to chip in just briefly because, and it's just, I guess I just want to add to you, to you, Bob, that, the, the gratitude is is very heartfelt to those who support through Patreon and also to everyone listening. You know, we really appreciate it, and yeah, we we, we just really hope you're enjoying what we're putting out there, and and we always appreciate the support we get from people. Yeah. All right. With that, that does it for my topics. John, you got anything else you wanted to to add in on? Um, I'm trying to teach myself how to play Europa Universalis Four. Does that count? <laughs> um, sure, go for you it. You know the aforementioned problem of time affects that so every six months i have this idea i'll teach myself to play europe universalis 4 and what has happened with paradox games is crusader kings 2 was a mystery to me until i figured out if i can just keep a connection keep a grip on the marriage politics which is the whole point of that game anyway i can enjoy this game and i'm not getting everything out of the game but it can be very enjoyable. Like, my favorite moment has to be when, through a particularly clever marriage, I suddenly controlled basically the Mediterranean. It just happened. <laughs> I went from being nobodies in Saxony, you know, to controlling the Mediterranean. And then Hearts of Iron 4, I had the exact same experience. Once I figured out that the factories were kind of a currency, boom, I could play Hearts of Iron 4. And it was really, really mm -hmm. enjoyable. And, but Europa Universalis 4 is just impenetrable to, impenetrable to me for whatever reason. And I just, mm. and what I want to do is I'll, I'll play as Castile, I think, and go to the New World and do all these fun things. And I'll play two or three campaigns in these large countries, specifically so I can then control Munster and take over the world. That's the whole, that's that's the long-term goal. Um, and it, But again, by the way, oh, I was playing it last night for not very long. And the same problem with these Paradox games. They're, they're great games. And we did an episode on, on Crusader Kings 2 with uh, Christine Baker, and it was a great episode. It was really fun to do. And I, I was I'm very proud of the episode. Um but you're just, it's like, how can I, God, I feel like I could do a whole series of videos on these games. There's just the grand strategy mm -hmm. idea. Um, but then the me the medium can kind of be a bit of a hang up. I guess that's the, that's the thing with video games, isn't it? As a medium, that's why they thrive and work so well. I, I just want to, I want to, I want to grab people listening and say, you should totally try a Paradox game if you haven't. You really, really should. <laughs> Trust yeah, me. Absolutely. You know, when one goes on sale, Crusader Kings 2 is probably still the most accessible. It doesn't seem like that. But it is, um, I, 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 maybe that's what I'll do. I won't make content. I'll just go out and grab people and say, you should play Crusader Kings 2. <laughs> I think you could get arrested for that. Yeah, I think so. Say, you know, <laughs> Central Kentucky man arrested for ranting at people about bishops getting syphilis. That would be the... So So what's your end point if you're, you're playing as Munster? Is it to force people to appreciate hurling? I mean, what is... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what is the... What is the mission there? I think that um, my my goal in life, so Europa Universalis 4 has dynamic naming of areas, apparently. So, for example, in uh -huh. Crusader Kings 2, one of my monster games, I was very, very powerful. And I had the opportunity to form uh, Britannia, I believe it's called, in Crusader Kings 2. And I mm. refused to do that. 
uh, <laughs> because I don't want to because I'm Irish. And so conquering the English had been hard fought and I didn't I didn't like to take on the British thing. It's it's very goofy and silly, I know. But um, I can't help it. I love counter... Nine, 900 years of pain exactly. and <laughs> I, I love the counterfactual stuff. I love the idea of some kind of strange early modern Irish supra super state you know running from mm-hmm. running from the coast of Kerry to the fields of the fields of Bavaria I'd be that'd be pretty cool um nice. but that might never happen but uh, but that's that stuff is just so so much fun Hearts of Iron 4 was fantastic in that way and I I wasn't Hearts of Iron 4 is more limited than the other games like it's it's kind of a scenario really um but I greatly enjoyed it and what I didn't know about Hearts of Iron 4 is the war ends and you have to manage the peace and uh, the peace man ended with me I was the British in that game um, controlling half of Spain, uh, wow. which was just really weird. It's like, uh, okay, yeah. give me give me the lower half of Spain in addition to Gibraltar. And the game said, yeah, okay, because the Spanish had jumped in with the Nazis. Oh, well. Yeah, that's what you get. You, get, you reap what you <laughs> sow, Franco. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly <laughs> right. Uh, for myself, I've been playing through Mass Effect Andromeda. Ah, how is recently, that? Tell me about Mass Effect it's... Andromeda. So... I think it's fine. Okay. You know, it got a lot of criticism, mm-hmm. but the game itself is fine. The combat's fine. The writing is okay. And I think what hurt that game was the stupendous nature of the original trilogy mm-hmm. was the fact that that trilogy, Mass Effect 1, 2, 3, was on the whole just one of the best things to happen to gaming in the last decade. And now you come out with a game which is not necessarily bad, but it's just not up to that standard. Yeah. And it, it got flogged to death. I mean, I bought the game a couple of weeks ago for $16. Amazon is basically blowing out wow. uh, their new copies of the game. I got it for $16. And a week later, they put it on sale again for $12. Wow. So they're working through their backlog of that. And it's a shame. I think the game, it's got some things to recommend it. There are problems. I mean, the, the writing is not very good uh the dialogue is not great the characters are not memorable um you're really selling it bob <laughs> well, but it's not you know but I, the reason why i'm saying these things is because i'm comparing it to what came before right right and you know if this was a standalone product i think that it would be judged in a much better light mm-hmm. than it is now uh you know and it's yeah but i think people forget how rough the first Mass Effect game was, mm-hmm. and and they just remember Mass Effect two and three, and I think that that's really hurt this game a lot. But I'm I'm having fine time with it. It's okay. I I would I think I'll give it a shot one of these days. I have a theory, and I said this to you privately already, Bob. And I have a theory that I wasn't the only person that was. I was pretty disappointed by Mass Effect three. Um, I really was, and it wasn't just the ending. Like everyone got in a big tizzy about the ending, and I actually thought the ending was fine. I could totally see why they got to that point. It, it actually kind of made... It wasn't my favorite ending video game ever, but it was fine. But it was just Mass Effect 3... Mass Effect 2 was so good. And of course, as you point out, the leap between Mass Effect 1 and 2 was so huge that maybe I unfairly thought, well, 2 to 3 will be another quantum leap. And it was unfair to expect mm-hmm. that. And I think that a lot of hopes, whether they be subconscious or recognized, were put in Andromeda. You know? Yeah. Oh, this It's okay. They'll move to the next level this time. And sure... Maybe there isn't a level for them to get to. Like the Mass Effect trilogy was really, really good, yeah. crazy good. Yeah, I f- yeah. I feel really sorry for the people who who made the game because it's just you know it's this creative process involving hundreds of people. You know, it's it's a tough 
tough spot to be in when that kind of thing happens. Yeah. And, uh, you know, EA, which published the game, they're kind of going through some troubles. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just got rid of Visceral, right. yeah. uh, and which developed Dead Space, which is kind of a, a tragedy. You know, Amy Henning, who wrote uh, the first three Uncharted games, she was part of that studio working on a you know single-player action-adventure Star Wars game, which looks like it's completely scrapped. I know. So it's it's a weird time for games, and it's a weird time for single-player narrative-focused games as well. So yeah, I, but history games, history games are apparently leading the way. <laughs> apparently, you know, top sellers. You know? And as as soon as Wolfenstein: New Colossus brings in loot boxes, that'll be it. Then it'll be fully established. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure Assassin's Creed is going to have some sort yeah. of, you know, kind of gross, um, you know, uh, pay-to-play aspects to it. Uh, Call of Duty, obviously, the mm-hmm. multiplayer will have that as well. Um, but those are kind of, I don't know, those are kind of entrenched versions of monetization, whereas the stuff that EA and other studios are kind of working towards, the loot box stuff, that's kind of a new, relatively new innovation, which I think is particularly disturbing and gross yeah and it's you know as so often happens blizzard basically pioneered this loot box idea or at least popularized it and nobody thinks they're gross because they just have a gift they can get yeah. away with it um yeah but you know well we'll see we'll, we'll see what happens yeah that'll be a future topic the monetization of video games that'll be a, a more meta history <laughs> thing yeah all right well that does it for our episode thank you again for joining us uh if you enjoyed this episode please give us a uh well give us a rating on itunes uh or share uh the episode on facebook or twitter uh actually john i don't know if you use the the uh itunes app or the podcasting app from apple but they've recently updated it for the first time i think in at least seven years and now it's incredibly easy to do a rating of a podcast. Oh, All you have that. to do is go to your show in the Apple Podcast app and scroll down, and there's the rating thing right there. And you don't have to go into iTunes. You don't have to open iTunes. You don't have to think about iTunes. All you have to do is just use that podcast app. So if you've got that new podcast app updated, please give us a rating. We really appreciate it. Uh, five stars is the only acceptable <laughs> rating for the show. Uh, And with that, that does it. Thank you for joining us and goodbye. Goodbye.